0: Genesis chapter 4, if you're using one of the Pew Bibles, that should be on page 3, page 3 in the Pew Bibles. And I'll be reading uh, chapter 4 to kick us off here, but we'll be working all the way through chapter 6, verse 8 this morning. So Genesis chapter 4. We read, Adam made love to his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Later, she gave birth to his brother Abel. And now Abel kept flocks, and Cain worked the soil. And in the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. And the Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering. But on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. And the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is to have you, but you must rule over it. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. And the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? I do not know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you are under a curse and driven from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. And Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is more than I can bear. Today you are driving me from the land, and I will be hidden from your presence. I will be a restless wanderer on the earth and whoever finds me will kill me. But the Lord said, not so. Anyone who kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. And the Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one who found him would kill him. So Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. And Cain made love to his wife and she became pregnant and gave birth to Enoch. And Cain was then building a city and he named it after his son Enoch. To Enoch was born Irad and Irad was the father of Mahujael, and Mahujael was the father of Methushel and Methusiel was the father of Lamech. And Lamech married two women, one named Ada and the other Zillah. Adah gave birth to Jabal, and he was the father of those who live in tents and raise livestock. His brother's name was Jubal, and he was the father of all those who play stringed instruments and pipes. Zillah also had a son, Tubal-Cain, who forged all kinds of tools out of bronze and iron. And Tubal-Cain's sister was Naamah. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, listen to me, wives of Lamech, hear my words. I have killed a man for wounding me a young man, for injuring me. If Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech 77 times. Adam made love to his wife again, and she gave birth to a son named Seth, saying, God has granted me another child in place of Abel since Cain killed him. Seth also had a son, and he named him Enosh. And at that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. In February 1996, Antonina Pevnev, the mother of a three-year-old girl, received a restraining order from Judge Charles Spurlock of Suffolk Superior Court in Boston against the three-year-old son of Margaret Ing. Margaret Apparently, the two toddlers had a spat in the sandbox, and the court had to issue an injunction to preserve the peace at Charles River Park Playground. Uh, in his wonderful book, Losing Our Virtue, David Wells' uses this true story to introduce an important topic and to ask some important questions. Uh, he, he asks, "Why is it that lawsuits are so rampant in this country?" I mean, should we not be amazed that a court issued an injunction for three-year-olds at a local park? I mean Shouldn't we marvel that parents weren't talked to, or maybe cousins or grandparents or neighbors or anybody else that went to the courts? See, the problem, Wells notes, is that we live in a world which has replaced the virtue of self-restraint with self-gratification. In our highly individualistic world, where everyone is out for maximal self-gratification, there's going to be collisions, because the things that gratify me are going to collide with things that gratify you and so forth. Uh, See, the framers of the Constitution intended for the courts to actually play a very small role, but now the courts actually provide the only morality in one sense. Everything gets legislated, so we have legislative morality. Well, the longer a society goes and the further it moves away from self-restraint and from the virtue of self-restraint and self-government, the more laws are going to be required, even to the point of issuing an injunction against a three-year-old for a spat on a playground. But see, the problem goes way back before the founders of our country. If you remember, in the garden, there was one law. There was one rule. Just don't eat of that tree. Uh, Everything else was free. But after the fall, Adam and Eve are sent out east of Eden. Now, in the book of Genesis, east of Eden serves uh, as far more than just a geographical marker. Uh, East of Eden is the place where it is away from God's presence. And the journey east of Eden begins in chapter 3 at the very end and really picks up speed here in chapter 4, and it runs all the way through chapter 13, before the first time you have a return from Eden in the story of Melchizedek, which we'll get to in some weeks, Lord willing. But chapters 4 through 11 form the next three toledotes, that's the Hebrew word for generations, it's the next sections of the book of Genesis, and it tells this journey going further and further and further East of Eden. So our sermon this morning is living east of Eden. And by way of a little review, what we saw at the beginning of the book of Genesis and Genesis 1, 1 through 2, 3, is the creation account. And in the creation account, some 35 times we read God plus a verb. Elohim, God did. He he spoke, he created, he named. It's putting on display the kind of God that you're being introduced to in these pages. he's a creator god that he is lord he is sovereign and then in chapter 2 verse 4 through chapter 3 some 20 times we were introduced to another name of the lord the lord god or yahweh elohim is the way it would be in hebrew and that's speaking of him as the covenant lord that that he's not merely creator he's not only creator but he's a god of relationship and he he builds and created these people, the pinnacle of his creation, to be in relationship, covenant relationship with the man and the woman. He made them to be kings and priests, to rule over the world. And then in chapter three, we're introduced to another character, a rather interesting character, the serpent. Uh, And this serpent comes and deceives the the woman and and the man, and, and so they fall. And I spoke about how older generations of theologians, they spoke of the fortunate fall or the happy fall, which strikes us rather odd. But here's what they were saying, is that the fall is fortunate in the sense that if it weren't for the fall, humans would never know God as merciful and gracious, as long-suffering. See, in a perfect world, there's no need for mercy and grace. So in a perfect world, you don't get more of God, you actually get less, because the whole part of God you don't really know. This is why when Moses asked God in Exodus to show me your glory, the first thing that God tells to Moses in Exodus 34 is this, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Notice, all of those are things that only make sense in a fallen world. So it is a fortunate fall in that sense. Apart from that fortunate or blessed fall, we would have no access to that knowledge of God, which is on display in the fact that God creates the covering for Adam and Eve after their sin. See, there is no mercy and grace and forgiveness in an unfallen world, and yet God reveals himself even through the sinful decisions of human beings. But that does not mean that just because there's fortunate elements of the fall, that is a good thing. And chapters 4 through 11 of Genesis paint in vivid colors just how horrendous and heinous the fall is. So with that introduction and background, we'll move to our three points, uh, walking through again chapters 4 through all the way through 6, 1, or 6 verse 8. Uh, I, with this large a text of scripture, I, I won't be able to touch down in every place, but I want to show you how these passages fit together. Uh, and the three points we'll be looking at is the seed of the serpent, the seed of the woman, and the judgment and favor of the Lord. So first, the seed of the serpent. When we read the text, it, it begins that Eve gives birth to a son, and it says that Adam made love to Eve. Well, that's actually a, a, an unfortunate translation. It quite literally says, as the older translations say, Adam knew Eve. Now, the reason that's so important, and I don't have time to, to get into it today, is that that idea of knowing runs the entirety of Scripture, and it is critically important to understand because it ties the Bible together. You see, when it speaks of God foreknowing his people, it's not a knowledge of facts. It's an intimate knowing. God knew. He foreloved his people. And that theme is critical for understanding the whole Bible. So Adam knew Eve, and she gave birth to a son. Now remember, this would have been important because God promised in the midst of the curse that one day the seed of the woman would crush the head of the seed of the serpent. So everybody, the first readers of this book, every time we read the genealogies which put us to sleep, they would have been asking on the edge of their seats, is this the son? Is this the son? And that's exactly what Eve does. She says, with the help of the Lord, I have received a son. In Hebrew, there's a wordplay. Hebrew is a language full of wordplays, and it's great. She says, I have caned a cane. Uh, the, the, the Hebrew word kanaz is to get, acquire. She got herself a cane, and She's thrilled thinking maybe this is the son who will crush the head of the serpent. And before we're given any more information, instantly the the author moves on to Abel, whose name means vapor, which is very appropriate for how short his life will be but a vapor. And then it fast-forwards again in the narrative, and it takes us to the point when these two brothers are adult. Some seven times the word for brother is used in this section, and it tells the story of how these brothers approach the Lord in worship. Uh, Abel had grown up to be a, a keeper of flocks, and so he brings a sacrifice. And we're told that his sacrifice was of the fat portions. Now, for those of us who are health conscious Westerners, we think, the fa- who would want the fat portions? But in the ancient world, the fat portions were the best portions. And so he brings the best of the first fruits of the firstborn of his flock. Whereas it says, Cain brought some of the fruit, you know, just some of his stuff. Well, what's putting on display is the attitude of the worshipers do they know god relationally or not so we read that cain brought his offering and the lord was not pleased with them now we're not told how the narrator is not interested in those details uh, he's telling us what life is like east of eden and so he shows us that <clears throat> cain was angry and it says his face fell and then verse 7 highlights the central theme which runs through this section And it says, God speaking to Cain tells him, sin is crouching at our door and its desire is for you. That word for the desire there is only used three times in the Hebrew Bible. It was used in the last chapter as part of explaining the ramifications of the fall to Eve when it says that your desire will be to rule over your husband. And it's mentioned then here, sin is desiring you. And the last time it's mentioned is in song, uh, Song of Songs 710. The husband is giving a poem about how glorious his wife is and he's speaking in quite provocative language about how wonderful she is. And the wife responds by saying that his desire is for her. The, the picture is meant to say this, the language is showing us that sin is like a hungry lion desiring, lusting for its next kill, to be satiated, to eat. Or we could put it this way, that east of Eden, there's no neutrality in this life. Uh, friends, every morning you wake up, uh, sin is desiring to rule over you, and you are told to rule over it. That's the picture being painted for us here. Every day we wake up to a world of desire, of ours and of others. As with the earlier story, or there's three-year-olds desiring to have their way on a park or us desiring to have our way in the various things of life, this is a life of Desire. This is why the great Puritan pastor, and theologian, John Owen, wrote in his book, The Mortification of Sin, or The Putting to Death of Sin, has a great little phrase that I would encourage you all to learn and know. He said, be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. We are either those who are, who are on guard, who, who are on defense, and, and even seeking to, to kill sin and overcome it and conquer it, or we're those being hunted like a lion, stalking its prey. See, for Cain, that's exactly what is at stake. He has the option of overcoming his his jealousy of his brother or not. And sin killed him through his killing his brother. It demonstrates that Cain is actually the seed of the serpent, which is why that's the point of this sermon title. He is the seed of the serpent. Now, that doesn't mean that he had a snake for a daddy. No, it's in the theology of Genesis, though Cain is a seed of Adam, He's actually the seed of the serpent. Uh, this theme picks itself up and runs all the way through the Bible. Uh, Pharaoh is also the seed of the serpent. He actually wore a snake on his headdress, and he sought to kill, uh, in Exodus chapter 4, God's firstborn son, which is how Israel is referred to. And this is why Jesus can say to the Pharisees in the, in the Gospels, you brood of vipers. He, he's, he's not telling them they literally had snakes for daddies. He's saying you are acting as seeds of the serpent. And this theme will wend its way through the whole Bible. How does the seed of the serpent unfold? Until we, we get to Revelation chapter 12, when it says that a great red dragon or serpent is crouched waiting to devour the son who is to be born of the woman, the promised son. So the whole Bible shows us this battle between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. It begins here. And then after Cain has carried out his serpent task, God shows up and asks him a question And there's a sad deja vu that we hear play out in these words, Cain, what happened? And like his mother and father before him, he responds, pushing off the blame and passing the buck. Here, we actually find the third curse in the Bible. Back in Genesis 1 through 2, 3, there were three blessings. Uh, God blessed the fish and the birds. God blessed man and woman to rule over the ground, and he blessed the seventh day. And since the fall, there have been three curses. Uh, There was the curse of the serpent. There was the curse of the ground. And now there's the curse of an image bearer of God. No longer will he be able to gain from the ground. He's he's now a wanderer sent off. and, And there's some more about the mark on him. And I don't have time to get in all that. But the theological point being made is Cain is the seed of the serpent. Like his serpent father, he too is now cursed. He receives that cursing. And so, what God had made very good has now been cursed, and there's this deep, deep irony in Cain's response when God tells him, no longer will the ground give up its fruit. Cain's response is, this punishment is more than I can bear. Well, the Hebrew word for punishment there is actually the word for iniquity. So you could translate it, my sin is more than I can bear. We put this in cute little sayings. You know, you're, you don't do the crime if you're not willing to serve the time, right? That's, that's how the saying goes. That's precisely what Cain is at here. This is something I've experienced in my own life. When I was a young child, my mom would take us shopping, and I loved to hide under the clothing racks. And then I would just hang out there, and then all of a sudden she'd disappear, and she'd be frantically searching the store for me. So I remember one time after I'd done this to her many, many times, and, and she sat in the car with me and my younger brother and sister, and, and I was the oldest, and she said, Trevor, I'm telling you now it's five swats every time you go into a rack, period. No negotiation, it's just done. And I said, well, okay, you know, I can take five. So I went under one rack, I, could, I might be able to take 10. So I went under two and, and then three and then four. So we get home and mom, it was just gracious and wise and she gets home and she patiently says, uh, go to your room, I'll be there in a minute. And she comes in with the, with the spoon and she says, how would you like them? How would I like them? Yeah, would you like uh, four sets of five, two sets of 10, or one set of 20? And I said, you're going to give me 20? She said, no, 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 Trevor, you earned 20. I'm giving you what you earned. If I have known the Hebrew, I could have said, my iniquity is too much for me to bear. By the way, I took two sets of 10. Here's the point. Friends, living east of Eden, sin is hunting us. There's no neutrality. A day never happens when you wake up and you say, "Ah, today's carefree. I don't have to worry. Now you're being stalked. You're being hunted every day. Now, maybe someone is thinking, well, I mean, Cain was a murderer. Come on. I mean, clearly he deserves his curse, but I mean, I'm not a murderer. Well, keep reading your Bible. You get to Jesus's words in Matthew 5, 21 and 22. And Jesus compares anger at another image bearer as being akin to murder. Matthew 5, 21, 22. Everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Which is to say this, friends. If you've ever been mad, really angry with another image bearer of God, you have murdered them emotionally. We are all those. have despised the lives of someone else at some point. We have slayed them in our hearts while smiling at them with our faces. Owen was right. Be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. And the second half of this chapter shows us how the seed of the serpent continues to play out in the line of Cain. That's why you get the genealogy here. Uh, See, Cain's line, it's, it's not that because he's the seed of the serpent, he's devoid of all reason. No, quite the contrary. Did you hear the three major things that Cain's line had come up with? Uh, well, it says that they were, uh, they were you know, keepers of flocks, builders of cities, uh, the, the inventors of music, of strings and pipes, and, and also the metallurgy, the workers of bronze. No, this is the doctrine of common grace. Uh, see, see, common grace is the idea that, that God causes his rain and, sh- and sun to shine on both the just and the unjust. That God uses non-Christian culture to build all sorts of things. The seed of the serpent, it's not everything that they do is, is heinous and murderous. No, they build culture. And as a matter of fact, oftentimes they build the culture which allows the seed of the woman to thrive. Which would give us some, some wisdom and, and care in how we engage with the seed of the serpent in culture. Uh, that we shouldn't just, you know, shout with a megaphone through them, that they're, they're all horrible. No, we, we need to engage wisely. But what we see in this line through Cain is that we come to Lamech, and Lamech is the fifth one in his line. And you go from a murderer to a great-great-great-grandson who's a polygamist and a vengeful murderer. The first poem in the Bible is Adam's jubilant song over the creation of his wife. The second poem in the Bible is Lamech's jubilant song over his taking vengeance on someone. Oh, how far and how quickly can a seed roll away from the tree? So the seed of the serpent has begun, and he's off, wending his way through the Bible storyline. But in the midst of this wickedness, we also see a note of hope in the fact that there's also the promise of the seed of the woman. Look at verse 425 through, we'll just read to verse 5 of chapter 5. So 425 Adam knew, or yeah, I prefer, Adam knew his wife again, and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth, saying, God has granted me another child in place of Abel since Cain killed him. Seth also had a son, and he named him Enosh. And at that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord. This is the written account of Adam's family line. When God created mankind, he created them in the likeness of God. He created them male and female and blessed them and named them Mankind. When they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he had a son in his own likeness, in his own image, and he named him Seth. After Seth was born, Adam lived 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Adam lived a total of 930 years, and then he died. <clears throat> so here we're given a hint of God's faithfulness, that the promise will continue. Because with the birth of Seth and his son, people began to call on the name of the Lord. That's the covenant name of the Lord. The covenant has continued. Uh, Seth is said to be made in the image of his father. So his work of being a king priest continues. His covenant relationship with God continues. Even though they're living east of Eden, there's still a promise of redemption to be found in the seed of the woman. Now, I only read the first few verses of chapter 5, um because chapter five is very repetitive uh, and this is what i said this is the third toledote that that hebrew word for generations this is the third one the first one was uh the, the toledote of the heavens and the earth we saw back in chapter two verse four uh and then or rather this is the second one this is the toledote of adam the generations of adam and those toledote structure the book of genesis The NIV translates it the written account of Adam's family, but this runs all the way to the end of our passage today in chapter 6, verse 8, okay? But I want to give a few comments on the genealogy here, because I'm not going to do this to you, but I imagine if I asked uh, by a show of hands, how many of you have had a read-through-the-Bible program spoiled by a genealogy, or at the very least have done the, well, today's going to be a quick reading day, because it's a begetting chapter, there are pearls to be found in the begetting chapters they take a lot of work but let me just give you a couple of the pearls from this chapter first this chapter shows us 10 generations as has often been said the number seven in the bible is a number of completion or perfection the number 10 similarly functions in that way in particular we're given 10 generations which take us from adam to noah the first covenant was made with adam the second covenant was made with noah It is a re-covenanting, a re-enacting of the Adamic covenant. But guess what? You're going to get another 10 genealogy in chapter 11. And that's going to take us from Shem, Noah's son, to Abraham, who is the third covenant that happens in the Bible. Earlier in the year, we studied the book of Ruth, which ended with another 10 genealogy, taking us to David, the next covenant in the Bible. Which is to say these genealogies function as lessons in reading the Bible. They're showing you that not everything in the Bible is of equal importance. And the Bible, the the skeletal structure of the Bible is the covenants. The storyline hinges and turns on the covenants. Adam and Noah and Abraham and Moses and David and the New. Next week, Lord willing, we will spend some more time chewing on this idea of covenant as we look at the Noahic covenant But that's the first important thing about this genealogy, the 10, and how it gives you this key to read the Old Testament in particular. The second critical purpose of this chapter is this, is it sings a chorus of despair. Uh, This is telling us what life east of Eden looks like. The refrain, he lived and he died. He lived and he died. He lived and he died. Every birth east of Eden leads to death. Oh sure, there's life in between, and for some there's more than others, but every every birth leads to death. Separated from the tree of life, death is the end of every person. Except for the two little places where that pattern is interrupted, and the two places where this he lived, he died, strict pattern is interrupted, is first in Enoch, and second in Noah. And these two men are very important. Uh, Literarily, what Enoch does is he does not experience death which gives us a note of hope that perhaps death is not the inevitable end of every person. And then secondarily, Noah, uh, he, he's given as well. But also there's another beautiful literary thing happening here. See, the fifth generation from Cain was Lamech, the polygamist venge, revenge killer. The fifth generation from Seth is Enoch, who walked with God and was not. Oh, how different the paths are from the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. Another note of hope then is found in that second line. The son, of, the son of Seth, who's named Lamech, is far different than the son of Cain named Lamech. And Lamech's son, on Seth's line, he names him Noah. Noah, he said, will comfort us in the labor and painful toil that our hands have caused by the ground. So we see a hope for an undoing of the curse of the ground. That he will be this one who will bring rest to the people. And then finally, this introduction of Enoch and Noah are critically important for understanding the first few verses of chapter 6, as we will see. To understand these verses, we need to go to Hebrews. You don't need to turn there. I'll read it. But Hebrews 11, verses 5 through 7, references these three men. Actually, verse 4 also references Abel. But here's Hebrews 11, 5 through 7. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. He was not found because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was commanded as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. And by this, he condemned the world and became an heir to the righteousness that comes by faith. So, see, the author of Hebrews then ties together These men, Abel and Enoch and Noah, as the first exemplars of faith. In particular, it says Enoch pleased God, and then it explains that the only way to please God is by faith. Now sadly, sometimes this verse in Hebrews has been poorly interpreted and applied. There can be this idea that faith is merely the incantation, the Christianized incantation of, I believe in Jesus, or as the even song puts it, I decided to follow Jesus. Uh, That would be out of step with the overarching argument of the book of Hebrews, and particularly of Enoch here in Genesis. It quite literally says Enoch walked with God, or pun intended, his faith had feet. Quite literally, he walked with God. Uh, This is what James will refer to showing us that by faith, his faith was lived out by works of love and service. See, true faith, true belief in Jesus and in God always works itself out in devotion to God and love for our neighbor. Or has been well said, faith justifies the person, but works justify his faith. So see, however, while it is true that faith always works itself out, we also have to be careful not to confuse the root of faith with the fruit of faith no the the root of faith is the objective truth the space time historical reality that a man named jesus was born and he lived and he died and he rose again we have more historical evidence of that that all the caesars lived no that's what objective faith is in in that historical reality that we cling to and so faith is casting ourselves on christ that he is sufficient or as Puritan William Jenkins put it this way, till faith have fastened us to Christ, neither person nor performance can be acceptable because it is impossible to please God apart from faith. Well, perhaps you're here today and maybe you're not a Christian. Or maybe you grew up and you, know, you have had one of those experiences where you prayed the prayer or did the kind of pseudo-Christian incantation you know, for a couple times or maybe for years even. You know, so many of us will pray or say things and only later to change our minds or walk away. So maybe that describes you this morning. Here's the questions that I think I would encourage you to chew through. You see, one of the difficulties of living in, in, our, in our modern world is the affluence of this Western world. But you see, Jesus was very careful to say he didn't come to call the healthy but the sick. And our affluence can make us feel that we have no needs and so when we have no needs. What need do we have of Jesus? That's why He came to call the sick. Right? I, I saw this illustrated recently. I was golfing w- with a guy, and, and uh, we were just going for a walk and trying to chat him up and see how things are going. And uh, you know, I asked him, oh, what do you do?" I recently retired, and he's telling me his story. And you know, yeah, I couldn't quite afford to retire, but so I'd rather live a simple life. And and uh, and so you know, we're we're chatting, and then he asked me, "You know, what do you do?" And this is always the question that stops the conversation. I'm a pastor but he was great. He engaged. Oh, wonderful. What's that like? You know? And so we, we got to chatting and stuff, and I showed a great interest. And so I said, oh, you, you ever go to church? And his response was, nope. But that doesn't mean I don't believe in something. He was very firm. I believe in something, but I just don't go to church. You see, friends, I would just say, if maybe you resonate with, with his saying, that the idea that a, a little belief or openness to belief, that that's a good thing, I don't say this to be mocking in any way whatsoever, whatsoever. but I'll be tell- honest, that is one of the most intellectually dishonest things that a person can say. Because here's what I mean. Those who claim to believe in something so often use that as an excuse to never actually study, to never actually think for themselves. When I was in banking and I worked for secular people, and many people who just talk about how ridiculous the Bible is, I said, wow, how long did it take you to come to that conclusion? Oh, you know, I mean, I've, I've been around a bit. I said, oh, so did you study it in the Hebrew and the Greek? Did you read all the historical sources? Have you traced it out? Have you done your work? Oh, well, no. So you just don't believe in things you've never studied? Well, that's a fascinating thing. Well, I believe in something. What is that? Friends, what it really is is it's a default universalism. It, it, it's, it's what's put on display every time someone rich and famous dies, and we all throw around our RIPs. Rest in peace. Who, who says that there's resting in peace? Where does that idea come from? It comes from this idea that it's a good thing to believe in something. I'm, I'm open to belief. And friend, I just, I don't, again, I don't say this to be rude, and I'd love to speak with you afterwards, but it is the supreme height of laziness to say, I believe in something, but I'm just unwilling to chew on it. Because east of Eden, every life ends in death. Every first breath is accompanied by a last breath. And that day is coming. So friends, if you're here this morning and you believe in something and you'd actually like to do something about that, to to think on those things, I would love to meet with you. Uh, I have a myriad of books we can go through and studies and we can chew on these things together. But don't be lazy about thinking about matters of life and death. Because East of Eden, death is waiting. It is stalking every one of us. Well, That brings us to our last point. So in the flow of the passage, notice what we've seen. We've seen the seed of the serpent is wending its way through. Actually, it has is co-opted human beings. And human beings now enact the seed of the serpent. But we've seen that God is faithful. And he has allowed and continued and pressed on the seed of the woman. And so the hope remains. And so our third point here is the judgment and favor of the Lord. Both the judgment and the favor of the Lord. Look at verse five, twenty-eight, and I'll read through through six, verse eight. Well, Lamech had lived one hundred and eighty-two years. He had a son, and he named him Noah, and said, "He will comfort us in the labor and painful toil of our hands caused by the ground the Lord has cursed." After Noah was born, Lamech had lived five hundred and ninety-five years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Lamech totaled seven hundred and seventy-seven years, and then he died. And after Noah. He was 500 years old, and he became the father of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. When human beings began to increase in number on the earth, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of humans were beautiful, and they married any of them they chose. And the Lord said, "'My spirit will not contend with humans forever, for they are mortal, and their days will be 120 years.'" The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterwards. And when the sons of God went to the daughters of humans and had children with them, or by them, they were the heroes of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of human heart was only evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth, and his heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created. And with them the animals and the birds and the creatures that move along the ground. For I regret that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. So these first few verses of chapter six are highly debated. Uh, myriads of different positions taken in pages and pages. We don't have time to get into some details, but I'll give you a couple of points to kind of pin in your map, as it were. Uh, first, uh, who are the sons of God? Who are the daughters of men? What does that have to do with the Nephilim? There are parts of this passage I think the NIV translates really well. There's another part that I'm not so fond of. There's three or so main options for who the sons of God are. Uh, Some say that the sons of God are the sons of Seth, the good line, because we just got done reading about them. And the daughters of men are then pictured as being from the fallen line of Cain, and that's what's going on here. Others say that the sons of God are fallen angels. Uh, and, and they take human form. Um, and then the third, uh, the third option that some say is that they're powerful judges or kings. Eh, I've changed my mind back and forth. There's, there's some decent arguments for each one of them. I think I lean more towards the angels' idea taking the form of humans because of the way that Second Peter and Jude reference this passage. That's worth studying at some point. I'm not going to dig into it. The theological point being made is this. Whatever the angels are, the sons of God, rather, and the daughters of men, whatever they are, in the flow of the story, it's something that's so wicked, it causes God to decide to wipe out humankind. So that's the point. Uh, Now, did you notice, though, there's other important things to see? Did you catch that the sons of God, they saw the daughters, and they desired them, and they took them? The author of Genesis is giving us the same pattern that happened when Eve saw the fruit was good and desired the fruit and took the fruit. It's the same idea. The pattern of sin continues on down through the line. So the point is, regardless, is that the godly line of Seth, this seed of the woman, is living in a world that is coming undone with sinfulness. So much so that God limits the life of humans. Now, again, 120 years. could be 120 years until the flood. I think that's probably right. But then there's clearly a drastic decreasing of life that takes place. We just read about all these, like, thousand-year-age people, and that goes away after the flood. Both points are being made if because of the rampant sinfulness, God in mercy is shortening human lives because the longer lives they have, the more sin they can do, right? That's what's going on. Another difficulty, then, is with this word Nephilim. Quite literally, the word Nephilim is just the Hebrew squished into English. Uh, the, the old King James translated it giants, and it did so because of the way this word is used in numbers, speaking about how there were giants, Nephilim, in those days, and then it connects it to like Goliath, right, uh, down the road. Well, I like the first part of the NIV translation here. It says that the Nephilim were on the earth and before, and what Moses is doing is he's trying to show you whatever the Nephilim were and these giants, they were not the product of the sons and, and of God and the daughters of women. They were there before. They were already there. Here's why this is important. Seems like a bunch of whatever. Here's why. Boots on the ground. What it's saying is this. In those days, remember Moses is writing this for the Israelites who would just come out of Egypt. And if you go back and read ancient Near Eastern mythology, you read about someone like Gilgamesh. Anybody ever read the Epic of Gilgamesh, right? And it speaks about he's kind of like this half god, he's human and divine, and he's this mighty man of renown. And so Moses is writing and saying, No, that's not, it's not a demon baby, or it's not a, you know, no, it's not this thing. Whatever it is, that's not the point. They were there before. And so what it's doing is it's mocking the Gilgamesh type story, saying, No, 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 there's been great warriors, of course there's great warriors, but it's not that, it's not the mythology. Here's why that's important. In Numbers, the first time they go up to the land, they send spies in, and the spies come back. Do you remember their report? There are giants in the land, and we look like grasshoppers. What Moses is doing in Genesis is saying, yeah, and God made them all. So whatever they are, God made them. And yes, there were giants before, and yes, there are giants afterwards, but they're not the angel and, and human mix thing going on. That's what I think is happening here. Some people put the pieces together a little different. But the point, again, is showing the radical depravity of humanity. Every thought and inclination of their heart was evil all the time. And this drives us at this point. Now, all of a sudden, we get this other very difficult passage, which we don't have time to get into. But it says that the Lord regretted. What does it mean for the unchangeable God to regret? Ah, there's been books and books written about this. In short, my answer is this. I think we need to think literarily about what's happening here. Uh, See, back, I read up there with Noah because Noah, his father said that he would bring him relief from their work and painful toil. Well, those are the same words used that God regretted and it grieved him. He's showing that Noah is the relief for God's grief. It's a literary thing. The name Noah has assonance. It sounds like rest, so the point is God is providing a fix for human need through Noah. It's not trying to tell us that God can change. No, 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 don't, don't don't overly understand it. It's a literary portrait. If God who created these people is grieved, it's showing you the depths of human sin and depravity. Well, sadly, much of what is called American Christianity has a tendency to just minimize sin. Some would say, well, you know, this... Every thought and the inclination of their heart—that went away with the flood. Well, no, because eight twenty-one after the flood, it's going to say those same exact words. That's why we read that long passage from Romans earlier. I don't know if it made any of you uncomfortable. That's just, that's a hard passage talking about the depths of of sin. Here's why. Later in Romans, Paul will say this in Romans fourteen twenty-three: Everything that does not come from faith is sin, which is the same thing we heard from Hebrews. Without faith, it's impossible to please please God. But understand what this means. Friends, building wells in Africa, apart from faith in God, is sin. Building orphanages, providing food and shelter for homeless, apart from faith, is sin. Here's why. Because if not done in faith in the living God, then it's done as justification. It's done as a self-salvation process. It's done as we will see at the Tower of Babel next week, Lord willing, that we can build a name for ourselves. We can fix what's ailing with the world rather than trusting in God. Friends, Christians don't make a big deal out of sin. And the Bible doesn't repeatedly talk about sin and the depths of sin because we're dour or because we're moralistic. I know that's oftentimes thought to be the case. The reason the Bible is at pains to talk about the depths of sin and depravity is because there is a proportional relationship between how bad sin is and how much Jesus had to conquer on the cross. The smaller you make sin, the less you need Jesus. If sin can be fixed in, don't be a jerk. If sin can be fixed as like, okay, three-year-old, stop fighting, then why do you need the eternal Son of God to take on flesh and die a sinner's death? If you minimize sin, you minimize the cross. So, friends, the Bible is, is not at pains to talk about sin so much because of moralism or, or we can be better. Well, far from it. The Bible is at pains to talk about sin because it's trying to paint the picture that just as with Noah will be the need, will answer the need, Jesus answered the ultimate need of sin and death and hell. And this is why we often sing these truths so much better than we say them. The beautiful hymn, Man of Sorrows, what a name. For the Son of God who came, ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood. And he sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Guilty, vile, helpless we. Spotless, Lamb of God was he. Full atonement, can it be? Hallelujah, what a Savior. See, friends, life east of Eden is exhausting. But there is hope to be found in the Son, who for sinners was slain. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And we know that it reminds us again and again of our incredible need, of of the depths of our sinfulness, of the brokenness of our world. And yet it does so to hold out the wondrous reality and truth of the provision of Jesus, of his death for sinners. And so, Lord, would you help us to honor what the Bible says about sin so that way we can rightly honor the incredible salvation offered through Christ. We pray that you would use your word in our lives this week. For Jesus' sake, amen.